I ended last week's minor league news and brews by talking about some misrepresentations of how long the development staff throughout the system had been in place. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and do so. But just, you know, the long story short or the short story long is that basically there was a, you know, some statements out there uh, from somebody who's, you know, within the journalistic community talking about how their staff had been in place since 2020, like the entire developmental staff within the minors. And that really wasn't the case. There was a lot of guys brought in prior to the 2020 season, as opposed to, you know, 2020, where there actually wasn't any minor league development due to, you know, the canceled COVID minor league season. But I went and talked about, you know, how and who was put into place and when they were put into place and even some changes that took place this last season um, as far as development and gave some examples, even though they were minor ones at this point in time, of players who have been, you know, developed pretty well throughout the minor league system. Obviously, it's going to be the most important when they are developed on the major league level at PNC Park with, you know, the major league ball club, the Pittsburgh Pirates. But going along with development, and this is kind of where this ties in, something came out um, from the same person uh, basically, you know, rewriting history. I mean, I always say in my uh, my regular job that hindsight is forty twenty because it's often better than twenty twenty. Because I do know some people uh, in my life that have better than twenty twenty vision. So I kind of just started saying like you have even better and more clear vision than twenty twenty when you look back, and you can kind of make these decisions on the fly. Uh, there was some statements made about, you know, Henry Davis and how the Pirates have messed up his development because they should have given him, you know, an outfield glove from the start of the Grapefruit League, played him all 30 Grapefruit League games um, in right field, played him in right field throughout Altoona, and then when the bat, you know, finally forced the issue that then he would be, you know, more prepared to play right field. And yeah, I mean, in hindsight, 40-20, you know, that would be a great plan. But, I mean, going back and looking at it, I mean, everybody was kind of, you know, on the same page, um, including this person, as to, you know, what the Pirates were doing, you know, development-wise with both Henry Davis and uh, Andy Rodriguez. I mean, whether you agreed with it or not, I mean, one of them was going to be catching at one level and another one was going to be catching at the level right below that to give them both as many reps as possible. And I know that people would say that's, you know, smoke being blown up because, you know, both of them would have hit better than Austin Hedges, you know, at the major league level. So who cares what they did defensively and, you know, different stuff like that. But I mean, that's also kind of going into the fact that, you know, you're thinking that Andy Rodriguez got off to a completely, you know, hot start from the gate, um, even at AAA. I mean, in April, had a had an OPS of 726 and then, you know, suffered an injury. And even when he was called up, it wasn't like, and he was called up almost a full month uh, after Henry Davis. It, he was kind of starting to get the bat to come around a little bit. I mean, he was batting two. 96, which is really great to see, you know, 360 on base percentage, but his OPS was still sitting 
at 758, which would be nowhere near, you know, how on fire he was last year. So, I mean, he, from the beginning and from people that we've had on this show, Chris and I have talked about it on the, you know, Wednesday editions, Bucks in the Basement, you know, the, the regular podcast on this feed, is that, you know, Henry Davis was not as far along as Andy in his development as a catcher. So, I mean, if you could go back in time and say, you know, we think, number one, that Andy's going to stay healthy, which he did not, you know, for this entire full season, that Andy was going to hit as well as he had during the previous season, during his, you know, quote-unquote breakout, even though he had hit fairly well in the Florida State League uh, for the Bradenton Marauders during the previous year. But you're putting a lot of, like, if this happened and, and if that happened, then we would know that, you know, you should have given Henry Davis the, the right fielder's glove, you know, from the beginning, and, and that would have been more helpful towards his development. Now, should Henry be catching maybe, you know, a day, a, a week at this point in time? I mean, maybe. Um, but, I mean, just going back to what I've said and what I've been told, you know, over and over again, that if Henry was going to catch in the major leagues and you were going to wait for him to, you know, his, his receiving skills, game calling skills, blocking, you know, everything. I mean, the arm's always going to be there. But if you were going to wait for that to happen, then you would be waiting till at least, you know, June of 2024 to bring him up which once again would bring up you know more of the you know super two conversations and you would be holding his bat down but i can't really see how you can go back in time and number one like make a claim that this should have happened number two make a claim that you said this should have happened even though if you rewind the tape that's not what was said at all i think that the overall message in the beginning of of this you know I guess would be talking point would be that, you know, you can kind of forgive, you know, some of the stuff that's going on with Henry Davis in the field and just focus on, you know, with his, how he's doing with the bat, because he can be developed into a right fielder. He still could possibly be developed into um, a part-time catcher, but it seems to be at this point in time and the way that it's been, you know, since they arrived at spring training that Andy was ahead of Henry, that Andy was seen as the more advanced catcher. And then once Andy's bat caught up, you know, from what he was doing at the beginning of this season, and he started to hit a little bit more consistently that he would be up and he would be catching. And the other part that this takes into account is that, you know, we were going to say that Henry was going to get off to, you know, the ridiculous start that he got off to in Altoona and then continued in Indianapolis. When during his minor league career, he hasn't stayed healthy, you know, even at, the beginning of his initial season in Greensboro was out with an oblique and then was out with injuries, you know, mostly due to being hit by pitches, you know, in his second season and, and then expecting number two, that, that the bat would just, you know, explode like this. So it's just a lot of, you know, this, this changing history and hindsight, and it doesn't really do much to make that happen. I mean, 
obviously you would hope that the bat would be developing better, but I would also hope that as the season goes on and if he's playing right field for the rest of the season and then, you know, is focusing more on right field, you know, moving into next season, that this is something that he could get adjusted to and get, you know, more accustomed to. But in essence, I mean, once again, the bat is more important than the glove. And I really didn't want to spend this much time on it. And I did mention a player in there in Austin Hedges. And this is where I really want to go with this. Um, there had been some news that had come out earlier this uh, week. And it was the amount of money that Austin Hedges had garnered. And it's not even money. It's space, space, ability to spend, not actual money that Texas, you know, had given to the Pirates. And usually it has to be given in increments of $250,000 unless it's the remaining, their remaining pool, which at that point in time, you can just give, you know, that to them. Uh, Texas had received some from, I believe it was St. Louis that brought their total up to 760, 776,500, which brought the pirates up to $1,012,000 to spend. And this is not even like kind of where the confusion ends. The confusion lends itself to the fact that when the Pirates released, you know, the statement on when this money could be spent, they said, you know, the 2023-2024 international period, which really isn't a thing anymore. And I double checked this and had read some tweets and even reached out to Ethan Houlihan, who's a lot smarter than me um, in this realm of stuff, um, he's much smarter than me in many realms, but especially within, you know, roster construction and money and international uh, bonus pool space and uh, the rules of what happens is that this money needs to be spent by December 15th because ever since the, um, International period was pushed back uh, due to uh, the pandemic season, where the international period for that year was extended um, beyond what would be, you know, the normal time frame, and that the new period starts on uh, January fifteenth, and then runs through December fifteenth. All of the periods, the international signing periods, are just basically that that year. It's not like, okay, this is the 2023-2024 year. No, this is the 2023 year, um, which ends on December 15th. The 2024, um, which is something that, you know, during the offseason we'll be able to get into a lot more, talking about some of the top prospects that are there, maybe get some uh, people that do the rankings on that in to talk about that, but that will begin on January 15th, 2024. So this is not for the 2023, 2024 period, which kind of makes it confusing. It kind of makes it seem like that you can use it in either the 2023 or the 2024 period. No, it's within the rules that, you know, money that is received or the space that is received, uh, has to be used within the time period um, or within the year that it is received during. So, I mean, this is something that has been pretty big uh, within Ben Charrington's tenure. Uh, the most recent one, I mean, it's it's getting a little bit of news 
and more news now, um, at least the player is, is uh, Po Yu Chen, who is almost 22 years old, um, was acquired at the end of uh, 2020. Um, so that would be where it was, where it was kind of pushed back, where, you know, the international signing period was extended a little bit. Um, we had traded, uh, the Pirates had traded Gerard Dyson to, I believe it was the Chicago White Sox, uh, to get a little bit more money back. And they used that to sign Po Yu Chen, who was at 19 years old at the time, for $1.25 million. Um, and just wanted to give an update a little bit. I mean, everybody has seen, I believe in his most recent start, did not go five innings, uh, but struck out 12 uh, batters during that period of time. So he's uh, kind of been been getting a little bit of a push, a little bit of publicity recently, um, especially within you know Twitter, Facebook, all that kind of good stuff. Well, I got to see Poe Yu uh, pitch last year when he was in low A, Bradenton. Um, when I look at these players, if you can go back, I had a whole episode where I talked about like what I look for. Um, had a, a fairly solid whip there. It was a 1.261 whip, 103 strikeouts in 98.1 innings. Strikeouts, even though he did have those 12 um, in his most recent start, isn't his you know big calling card. Um, but he does usually strike out at or around you know, a batter per nine innings. So I'm just mentioned that as well, but a lot of people will see the 458 ERA and think, you know, that he was struggling a little bit. So now of course he has the, you know, 382 ERA, but if you look at it, the whip is staying right around the same. He has a 1.273 whip, uh, 103.2 innings pitch. So just a little bit below 104 innings. Um, and has 109 Ks, a guy that, you know, goes a lot on the control and um, not really throwing super hard. So when he's locating, and he does locate fairly consistently because, you know, for a, a starter within Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, what you want to see is that whip that is below or right around the 1.3, anything below that kind of consider to be a fairly reliable, fairly consistent starter. So Poyu has been doing that. Um, but going back even further than Poyu is um, Solomon McGuire. And his signing was pretty big when it happened. A lot of people know that they were able to sign him due to uh, the $250,000 that they had got as part of the Starling Marte trade to the Arizona Diamondbacks. And not only did they receive Leova Paguero, who, you know, everybody's getting to see play now, uh, Brennan Malone, who's unfortunately been injured, but also able to sign Solomon McGuire uh, to, it was, you know, just south of 600000 It was $594,000. Um, Solomon McGuire, still only 20 years old, unfortunately in his minor league career only has... 200 plate appearances due to injury is on the 60 day IL as we speak. And in those 200 plate appearances has only been slashing 196, 312, 286 with a couple of home runs is still extremely young, but this is kind of what is good for the pirates and what the pirates do 
and what Ben Charrington I've seen do very well, especially since, you know, you weren't able to trade this international bonus pool space or this ability uh, to spend that amount of money. Um, he uses it. So I would think, you know, in trading Austin Hedges and receiving that space and that ability to spend more money and now having the ability to spend upwards of just slightly over $1 million, that there should be a signing that Ben Charrington has in mind. Uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers right now have been linked to a, a pretty highly touted young man who is, you know, is one of the top He's supposed to be one of the top draft picks in the KBO draft this year. Seems to be that he is going to forego the draft. I think they have until August 15th uh, to make that decision that they are going to remove themselves from draft eligibility for that. But looking that he would be signing for around uh, $900,000. Um, maybe that was Ben Charrington's move. I'm, I, I, I would still think that they would have a backup plan for that or that maybe that's not even the person that they were looking at. Um, but I would look for them, you know, to kind of spend that money. And speaking of spending money, the Pirates gave, you know, the highest bonus in MLB draft history to Paul Skeens and wanted to talk about not only Paul Skeens, but, you know, all of the players, because this seems to be, you know, going back to, I guess it would be, you know, what happened from the mi the major league draft um, prior to the the minor league baseball realignment prior to COVID um, was getting, you know, at least most of the people within your draft class, uh, your draft class, like some you know, professional baseball experience, whether it be, you know, at the FCL um, before it was, if you look back, I guess Quinn Priester is one of the first ones that, that comes to mind in my head. It used to be the GCL and now it's the FCL. Um, you used to see players, you know, playing, getting drafted out of college and playing for, you know, the West Virginia Black Bears, you know, the Bristol Pirates, uh, but obviously those ones don't exist. But now, over the past couple years, there's only been, you, usually it would be like your first round draft pick uh, would, and especially if they were a hitter, would make their professional debut. Uh, ben Charrington and company, along with John Baker, would, you know, kind of be making the decisions to almost, you know, most pitchers, um, even if they were college level pitchers, I mean, they would sit, you know, for the rest of the year and just get started uh, the next season. Uh, but we're seeing, you know, a lot more uh, professional debuts. You know, Paul Skeen's the big thing. I mean, he pitched in the the FCL, and I'm recording this on Friday, so that would have been on Thursday. If you want to go to see the video, please go follow um, our friends, Florida Prospect uh, Report. That's uh, Eric Garfield, uh, Eric Birdland. I believe it's Eric Garfield on Instagram, Eric Birdland on Twitter, and then the F Florida Prospect Report on Twitter as well. Um, go give them a follow. There's some videos on that. Um, the broken bat that he, you know, because basically almost every single one of his pitches through 11 pitches, seven of them were over 100 miles per hour. Uh, two of those were called for balls, um, but did, you know, strike out Walter Jenkins, who was, you know, the, I think he was fifth overall 
for the Minnesota Twins. So, you know, one of their top prospects. That's some kind of big news. Wouldn't be looking for much more. So I'll take a minute just to my thoughts on Paul Skeens. Um, and this is something that I've, I've heard and I've read about and discussed with a few people and just kind of thought that maybe this is maybe the path that, that Paul Skeens would follow. I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, just give him a couple looks in the FCL and bring him up to Altoona or at least Bradenton, different things like that. I mean, I think they may follow a, a Steven Strasburg type model, which was, you know, minimal work in the FCL and then, you know, some work in the Arizona Fall League. And for people that don't follow the Arizona Fall League, you know, if you're a starter, I mean, you're at most like usually going about three innings um, and you are facing – I mean, it's not like all stars, but there are some, you know, pr more advanced players there. I mean, he's in the FCL. A lot of times, I mean, you're thinking about it, like Walter Jenkins facing a, a guy who, you know, maybe probably has never faced a, a player of Paul Skeen's caliber. I mean, he was a high school player, Paul Skeen's playing in the SEC, you know, College World Series, you know, fairly advanced bats um, that he's facing there, and you know, so they may get him out. Um, in the Arizona Fall League where you're facing a lot of you know, double-A players, some of the top prospects within other you know, organizations at times. So that might be a path that's followed. If, if they don't follow that, I mean, I wouldn't be totally surprised. But, I mean, that's the way that I'm looking at it right now. But, you know, some other players have also, you know, debuted. Um, Mitch Jeb. Uh, the number second round pick out of Michigan State has 54 plate appearances in Low A Bradenton, obviously setting the world on fire down there, uh, slashing 356, 442, 400, six walks, three Ks. And that's something, you know, as somebody playing within the Big Ten, playing you now at a higher level and, you know, being dropped down into Low A Bradenton, getting to see some success from him. Uh, Garrett Forrester, he is, you know, the Oregon State first baseman, uh, third round. You're getting to see him play a little bit. Um, 24 plate appearances, you know, eight walks, six strikeouts. Unfortunately, only slashing, but I mean, it's 24 plate appearances, 200, 500, 200. Uh, Carlson Reed from West Virginia, the fourth round draft pick, has made his debut in the FCL. Jaden Woods from Georgia has made his appearance so the seventh round in the FCL. Landon Tompkins, the 10th rounder, uh, has made his, I think he's up to 2.2 innings, almost three innings uh, for low A Bradenton. Another big one that people have been sharing a lot of, tearing the world on fire. I think he had a six-hit game the other day. Uh, Charles McAdoo, the infielder from San Jose State, 24 plate appearances. I mean, video game numbers in those 24 plate appearances, slashing 650, 780, and an even 1,000. Two home runs, four base on balls, three Ks. Uh, the 14th rounder um, from Alabama, uh, Garrett McMillan. He's made his debut in the FCL. John Lopez, uh, the high schooler, only 17 years old. From, from the Puerto Rico Baseball Academy, has made his debut um, in the FCL. And then in low A as well, Justin Mickness, the catcher from Kent State, has 12 plate appearances. Kaylee Harrison from NC State, the shortstop, is in low A Bradenton. 
Uh, Tyler Kennedy, the former Pitt guy who went down to Florida Southwestern State Junior College. I always love the JUCO names because they're they're just always just like very eccentric and very cool names. He's in the FCL, um, and then also uh, Peyton Stumbo from Nevada. He's also in the FCL. That's the you know the 20th round guy the one guy we may not see uh just gets you know he's probably he's down there in in, in the complex but he's not playing in the florida complex you know xander meath uh one of the other big signings um comp round uh so he's he's somebody that we may not see um but i just kind of want to run through that there actually have been um, a lot more debuts than there had been in previous years. A lot of the times the college pitchers, you know, especially the high school guys, like you really wouldn't see, you know, any of them. You may see, you know, like I said, a, a college bat or something. So that would be like a Mitch Jeb, a Garrett Forrester. You would see them probably making their debuts, but it's been a lot more debuts than there have been in previous years. A pitcher of beer, a pitcher of beer, let's order. Everybody knows what that music means, and it means it's time for beer reviews. And I'm going to go a little bit out of order here. I was just up in Erie last weekend with the family. I uh, visited, you know, some of my extended family that lives up in Erie, hung out with my sister, my mom, my niece, all three of my kids, the wife. We went and checked out an Erie Seawolves game, a place I haven't been since I graduated college back in 2001, went to Mercyhurst in Erie. Uh, UPMC Park, the Erie Seawolves. Since I've been there, they put in what they call the gray monster, which is a 33 foot wall um, in left field. Uh, the home run is not as high as that 33 feet. I think they said it was around 17 feet. It looked a little bit higher than that for me. But the crazy thing about this is, you know, we kind of talk about like these minor league ballparks. I'm definitely going to have to have um, somebody who visits all the minor league ballparks come on. And just like the the just the the different fields that are, I mean, everybody talks about Greensboro and how small it is. Well, you know, Erie has this 316 foot left field, and don't worry, guys, I'll get to the Brews ad. But basically, I saw two absolute lasers hit towards the upper part of you know the wall just below where the home run marker is and it comes off of there so stinking hard that one guy just because it was kind of misplayed by the left fielder got a double but the other guy got what I mean I would love to see I'm gonna I have to go on and see if there's like a stat cast thing of like estimated distance on these things because believe me I mean this one was like still going up um, as it hit the gray monster and the guy got a single and it was like, you know, you're talking about like, okay, if you are playing in Erie all the time and you are a right-handed hitter, is there like some way where, you know, you can adjust 
the the player's OPS or WRC plus or whatever it would be, you know, to this gray monster because it was just something that was absolutely crazy. Uh, but while I was up in Erie, the first thing we did as a family, we went and ate in Northeast PA Skunk and Goat Tavern. Great place to eat. Pretty cool vibe. Um, it's an old bank. And we actually, there was like eight of us. So the only place they could really sit us all together was in the old vault. So you have like the old door and it's it's just like a cool place to eat. But they had their own ale. It was the Skunk and Goat Tavern Ale. It was a cream ale from Erie Brewing. Because of the atmosphere, because of just the coolness of the place, the name, everything. Uh, good tasting beer too as well. Haven't had a cream ale in a long time gave that a 475 bring that down to a 425 uh, while i was sitting around the pool with the kiddos uh the wife my sister my mom they went and you know tasted some some delicious wines a lot of wineries around there uh, but my wife was kind enough to bring me back a couple different beers to have while i was around the pool one of them was i-90 light lager from erie brewing company four percent um just a nice smooth could drink this beer pretty much all day came in the cool 16 ounce cans got the i-90 on there for anybody you know that drives even like through erie i-90 you know the major throughway there uh give this one a 425 down to a 375 also picked me up pittsburgh fan zone hazy ipa from elliotville brewing in new york a very cool can. Uh, she said they had these for Buffalo, uh, for Cleveland. I think there was also a State College one, maybe. Kind of seems to be that this is like one of their main hazy IPAs and get changed the, it's pretty much like the, the labeling for whatever one would be. Label was cool. Beer was good. Coming in at 5%. Everybody knows I love the hazies. I love the lighter hazies. Give this one a 475 down to a 425. And also while I was up there, I tried the DVE Rocks from Helltown Brewing. And DVE does rock. And they're playing a lot of the songs that I... That's how I know that I'm old because DVE now plays the songs that I listened to in high school. Um, it's a hazy New England IPA, 6.7, a little bit heavier, but just because of the DVE rocks, Helltown Brewing, love everything that they do there. Giving them a 475 down to a 425. We'll get back on the, the train of reviewing the beers that I had when I was down on vacation with my family in Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge area. Pigeon Forge, you know, birthplace home of... Of, of Brian Reynolds, which everybody knows. But until next time, everybody, let's go Indians. Let's go Curve. Let's go Hoppers. Let's go Marauders. Let's go FCL and DSL Pirates. <laughs>